bringing a few people in. Just an FYI, um, my parents are here watching my kids and like they do not understand at all how to like work my um, TV period. And so I'm sure that they they have just turned the TV on for both children. And I'm sure that we'll be interrupted regularly with questions about volume and general, you know, how to function. Um, so yesterday they watched him and I came home and Everett had, um, like they'd given him half a can of Mountain Dew at 3 p.m. And I was like, where did you find this? Like, we don't even keep this in our house. So I don't even know like how he got this, number one. And number two, like you realize this has caffeine in it, like more than a cup of coffee. Thank you so much. I really appreciate your help today. Um, okay, today we have quite a bit to go through. So I'm gonna just try and keep moving. So what, um, Disclaimer, we may go over time. Feel free to just jump out if you need to. I don't care. If you need to take a break, take a break. Um, but I'm going to get through all the slides and I'm going to record until I do. So feel free to just jump out and stop listening. Or if you have questions, just interrupt and let me know. Okay. We're talking about acute intracranial problems today. And here's the thing with intracranial problems. Um, I'm going to have to find some people with screens on. So um, this. There's a lot of different causes of why people have intracran increased intracranial pressure. That's really what we're talking about today is increased intracranial pressure and the problems associated with it. And to understand increased intracranial pressure, we have to do a little bit of backtracking to understand like what is intracranial pressure. And then we can get into like the causes and the signs and symptoms. Now here's the deal, signs and symptoms, care, and nursing care, collaborative care, medications, all of that stays pretty much the same, no matter what the cause is, right? Like the main goal is relieve the intracranial pressure and bring it down. And so the monitoring is all the same, no matter what the cause is. The symptoms are all the same, no matter what the cause is. So um, we're really gonna just touch on head injuries. And whenever you're thinking about like, it's time to study for this exam and you're thinking like, what do I need to know about these head injuries? just the pathophysiology, because the signs and symptoms and the diagnostics and the collaborative care and nursing care are all the same for all of them, all right? So we're not gonna spend a lot of time unpacking the specifics of the head injuries. We're just gonna touch on pathophysiology and that's what I want you to do too, right? You're always gonna let my um, lecture and PowerPoint kind of guide your studying. So when we're thinking about intracranial pressure, um, it is, the pressure inside of your cranium, right? Your skull makes up your cranium and there's some things. Now there's not that much in there. Like obviously there's a lot going on and we need our brains. But in terms of like what is inside of your brain, it's your brain tissue. And you've seen it on TV. It's like that kind of weird looking organ. And then there's blood and then there's cerebral spinal fluid and that's it. Brain tissue, blood and cerebral spinal fluid, all right? Um, your body's kind of constantly producing cerebral spinal fluid, and you can see these different um, volume components. There's 78% of that space is made up of brain tissue. Now, let me ask you a question. Just from what you know, does that have some ability to expand and like compress brain tissue? It definitely does, right? That's why you should never go giving like a bunch of, uh, you know, like hypertonic solution, because what's going to happen is fluid is going to be pulled from the brain tissue and get pulled out into the uh, intravascular blood, right? You can see your blood is 
makes up 12%. And of course, that's carried by arteries, veins, capillaries. We know that stroke is caused whenever, like a hemorrhagic stroke is the rupture of one of those arteries. Um, you can also have like an ischemic stroke if a blood clot forms or gets lodged into one of those small arteries. Um, and so, yeah, intravascular blood is makes up 12% of that space. And then the rest is cerebral spinal fluid, about 10% is cerebral spinal fluid, okay? Your cerebral spinal fluid functions just to kind of support your brain tissue so it's not like down on the bones, right? But it's bathing that fluid or the tissue all the time and it goes also down into your um, spinal cavity, your spinal column and um, bathes like your spinal cord as well. And so that's your central nervous system, your brain and your spinal cord, that's your central nervous system. But today we're really just talking about this stuff that's hanging out in the brain. Next week we'll talk about the other nerves and stuff like that. Normal ICP is 15, uh, five to 15 millimeters of mercury. Write that down, highlight that, bold it, whatever you need to do, that's important. Um, and besides that, I don't know that we really need to spend too much time on anything in this other than you should think of your um, skull as is, like right now you're an adult, you're not an infant with an open fontanelle. Ruby's an infant. And so she has that anterior fontanelle that's open. If you felt the top of her head, it's that soft spot. And you guys should be assessing that soft spot in your pediatric patients right now, if you're in PICU or NICU. Um, th that tends to close, I believe like two years old. Isn't that right? The fact that I don't know means that I don't, it's not on the test. So um, whenever that thing closes and it's closed, you don't have a like open fontanelle, I hope. But once that closes and all of those sutures fuse, we're talking about a closed box, all right? And that means that um, if the brain tissue does expand, then something has to happen with that blood and cerebral spinal fluid, right? And if that brain tissue um, you know, compresses a little bit, then something has to happen with that intravascular blood and that cerebral spinal fluid and vice versa. If we have a hemorrhage and we have a whole lot of blood leaking into that space, that something has to happen with the brain tissue and the cerebral spinal fluid. So all of these components work together to make sure that the pressure inside of this closed box stays stable and stays within this normal range of five to 15 millimeters of mercury. All right, when it doesn't, that we're talking about increased intracranial pressure, right? And just as a teaser, obviously those components only have a very limited ability to um, compensate for increases in the other one, right? If you have a hemorrhagic stroke, the reason that will eventually cause increased intracranial pressure is because your blood tissue or your brain tissue can't just compress and compress until it's the size of a raisin, right? And your cerebral spinal fluid can only go so many places. It can only go down in the spinal column before you're dealing with increased intracranial pressure. So think about this as a closed box. Um, and we have some ability to compensate. So here's the th different things like you have your arterial pressure, your venous pressure. Oh, um, these are things that would like uh, cause increases, potential increases. Have you ever experienced increased intracranial pressure, even if it's temporary? What's, what are things that our patients can do that may increase their intra or their intracranial pressure? Um, when you like strain to pass bowel, 
Yeah, we always have to bring up Valsalva maneuver. At least once a lecture, we're talking about, you know, straining to poop. Yeah. Now here's the deal. That does, that can, because and you're increasing your intra-abdominal, everybody just do, increase your intra-abdominal pressure. And you're going to feel like some something happening up here with your sinus pressure and stuff like that, right? And so likewise, that's increasing your intracranial pressure too. The issue is that you and I, we have the ability to compensate for that. When you increase your intra-abdominal pressure, that actually increased your vascularity and like your blood pressure in your brain. And so some CSF probably shifted out just temporarily, but it's not sustained, right? It's temporary. It's a, a very intermittent thing that we have control of. And then, you know, you start breathing again, everything's fine. But there are things that like masses in cerebral edema, that's not, that's not going to be a temporary intermittent situation. That's going to be a sustained issue that has the potential to cause you know, sustained increased intracranial pressure. So anytime your intracranial pressure is above 20 millimeters of mercury and it's sustained, it's not like you sneeze, you had a sneezing fit. Have you ever met anyone who sneezes like six or seven times in a row? Like they're having issues with in increased intracranial pressure, but it's not sustained. So um, yeah, posture, what about posture? Like what posture would you have to achieve to have an increased intracranial pressure? Hanging upside down. Hanging upside down. Who said that? Hold on a second. It was me. Caitlin, do you do that normally? Is that something that you participate in a lot? So I actually, like my back from, I played softball before this in college. And so I'll hang upside down to kind of loosen my back. And so that's the only reason I know. Yeah. And so do you wait until your face is red? Yes. <laughs> and then like, I get a headache. I'm like, okay, I can't do this. So that's, um, that's uh, what's that thing called whenever we're doing that to people? Um, tension, no. Friction, no. That thing, you know, when like people- Spinal have... decompression. What'd you say? Spinal decompression. Yes, spinal decompression. But we also do it for like, you know, when people have fractures and we're trying to maintain alignment. Isn't that a friction? It was, wasn't it called friction or tension? I don't remember. You put weights on it. Yeah, yeah. We know what we're talking about, right? If you don't. Talking about traction? Traction, Sunny. <laughs> traction, yes. Because you're like using your body weight to kind of decompress your spinal column. And yes. Oh my gosh. I don't even know how we got there. But Caitlin routinely increases her intracranial pressure by spinal decompression. Excellent. All right, we're moving on. There's a, a hypothesis. I think it's so funny, you know, that we call this a hypothesis. Um, but it's called the Monroe Kelly hypothesis. And it's basically saying that ICP is balanced. It's maintained by a balance of these three properties, the brain tissue, the, the cerebral spinal fluid, and your intravascular blood volume. And so anytime you have an increase in one, the others have to decrease to compensate. And the, the reason I say it's funny that we call this a hypothesis is because it's like, well, what else could be happening? You know, like at, at what point do we just say this is a proven, <laughs> like it's it's now a, you know, some a rule, I don't know. Um, so that's true. Anytime you have increase in venous blood flow, that means your cerebral spinal fluid is going to have to decrease to make sure that we 
keep this ICP regulated and within normal limits. Now you might have brief periods where you have a slight increase. Caitlin is hanging upside down and it increases her intracranial pressure, but then she eventually loses consciousness and you know someone comes in and hangs her and it's all fine. Um, so it will displace different things, right? If your blood tissue, your brain tissue actually expands it's gonna displace some cerebral spinal fluid and maybe some venous and arterial blood flow. And all of that is fine and good as long as we're maintaining cerebral perfusion, right? Um, ultimately, we have to make sure that we're getting enough blood flow to the brain or that's when Caitlin would pass out and like, you know, lose consciousness because her brain tissue is actually not getting enough oxygen because there's so much that wouldn't make sense at all because in that situation, there's so much blood flow. But yeah. Um, now that's Monroe Kelly. So that means that you have, and this kind of gets a little weird because I'm going to say a lot of the same words at a lot of the same time, but overall, if you understand that, like anytime you have an increase in one property, the others are going to decrease. DSF volume can change to accommodate brain tissue and blood flow. Uh, blood flow can be manipulated when CSF and brain tissue expand. Brain tissue can distend and compress to accommodate blood flow, all right? So that is a very elaborate way of just showing you what this picture is saying, that there's going to be some compensation of one whenever the other expands, or two whenever the one expands, okay? Um, and you could go nuts on this and, like, think of every possible cause. Well, there's a tumor. There's a tumor, and it's causing, that's brain tissue, that's, you know, overgrowth. And so what's that going to displace? Who can tell me what that is going to displace or manipulate? If there's a mass, it's going to displace the fluids. Yes. What fluids specifically? Uh, blood and CSF. Yeah, it has the potential for both, right? Now, CSF is more uh, readily displaced by the body than blood, and that's because why? Our brain needs a constant supply of what two things to survive? Oxygen and glucose. Yes. Everybody put that down in your notes. Put it down in your notes. The brain needs a constant, continuous supply of oxygen and glucose, okay? That's why when you're hypoglycemic, you start feeling immediately like you're going to die because like you're shaky, your brain needs that glucose. It also needs oxygen. Um, we have a friend of the family who had COVID and they discharged her from the hospital. I mean, she was like uninsured, didn't have anyone to take care of her. It was kind of a sad situation, but uh, they discharged her from the hospital in Kansas, even though she was like needing like 10 liters of air a minute, you know, of oxygen a minute. She was not stable, had nowhere to go. And they discharged her with like four tanks of oxygen, which if you're needing 10 liters of oxygen a minute, that's not gonna last you through the night. And so by the morning, she was like uh, super confused, wasn't making any sense at all. And why? Because her brain's hypoxic. Your brain needs a continuous supply of oxygen or you're not gonna be able to make sense of the world around you, right? And once you get that oxygen, ideally that fixes things unless it causes an anoxic brain injury, which we're going to talk about. Oh my goodness, look at this. All right, so hopefully you understand. Any questions about Monroe Kelly? I know I went by through that kind of fast. It's 
fundamental to understand everything else, but I don't want to spend like a crazy amount of time on it. All right, so let's do this. Provider orders a 500 milliliter bolus of sodium chloride for a patient with mild hypovolemia. The nurse accidentally administers a 500 milliliter bolus of 3% sodium chloride IV to a patient. So who can tell me what effect would this have on brain tissue? Think about it. I'm gonna tell you when I'm ready. Well, all of the, almost like all the fluid off the brain, they would, they would just, it would be such a huge shift of solute, sol, solvent, I guess, out of the brain uh -huh. into the blood. And the brain yeah. become distended. Yeah, that would be like, would it be like, um, uh, it's not, it's opposite of edema. So I guess, uh, I don't know what it's called. But compressed, it, it, compressed, yeah. So because like if you have a 3% sodium chloride and 500, bullet, 500 millivolts, it's hard to find that quantity. I don't even know that they make it because of how dangerous this is. But you're basically putting like straight salt into a patient's vein, right? We're talking about right here. So then why does it impact up here in the tissue of your brain? Because that tissue is pretty sensitive to fluid and, uh, you know, fluid shifting. And um, what's going to happen is the osmotic gradient of your blood, the solutes and the uh, concentration of solutes is so high in your blood that it starts taking water out of your brain and putting it into your vascula vasculature to be just because of osmotic gradient, right? And so that's going to cause this compression of brain tissue, which is not good, right? We don't want that to happen. But then what happens to blood and cerebral spinal fluid? Based on Monroe Kelly, what compensatory mechanisms would kick in it to, into an attempt to keep ICP within normal limits? Because if brain tissue is becoming depressed, well, theoretically, that could decrease your ICP, except that you have your CSF in your blood. And so what's going to happen if you accidentally gave 500 milliliters of 3% sodium chloride would be that your brain perfusion is going to increase and your cerebral spinal fluid is going to increase to keep your ICP within normal limits, 5 to 15 millimeters of mercury, right? Does that all make sense, you guys? Thumbs up, so down, thumbs up. I, I have a question. Yeah, Caitlin. So when you have, like when you do give hypertonic solution like this nurse did, mm -hmm. uh, so why, if it's pulling fluid out of the brain, why would it become compressed instead of not? Oh, well, never mind. I know. You just had to I talk know. through it. You just had yeah. to talk through it. The same thing is true though, Caitlin. Like if you gave hypotonic solution, right? Like let's say you gave um, like 0.25 sodium chloride um, and you gave like a ton of it and you're giving it for a long time. What would that do? So that would increase. So edema, basically. Right, cerebral edema. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. Okay, okay, so um, now because these compensatory mechanisms are limited, what effect would administering this have on the patient's ICP at some point? What would we see? Eventually, you'd see a decrease in ICP. Eventually, you're going to see a decrease in that ICP. That's exactly right. Good job. See, situations like that. What'd you say, Pauline? Oh, that I have a question. Uh huh. Go ahead. So if fluid is being drawn out of the brain tissue, but then it's being compensated, so it's being compensated then with fluid going into the brain tissue. So it's, um, 
it's not going into the brain tissue. The blood is, so the, what actually is going to happen is veins, the cerebral veins are going to dilate. The cerebral arteries are going to dilate and fill up. And so that you're having more cerebral blood flow. And then you're going to have more CSF hanging out in your cranium. So it's not that the fluid's going back into the brain, it's going into the cranium to keep ICP within normal limits. However, it's got, there's some limitation to that, right? Like your, your vessels can only expand so much and get so full of blood and you only have so much CSF in your body. So that, that's, that's why ultimately you can have increases and decreases in ICP is because of those limitations. Does that make sense? Yes, thank you. Okay. Any other questions? Yes, I have one. Yeah. Um, so for the third bullet point, it was decreases. Eventually, it's going to decrease our ICP. So was the second one that it increases the ICP, or was that the? Um, so oh, I'm blanking on the one, term. It's not going to increase ICP. It's going to maintain ICP by increasing okay. blood and increasing CSF. Okay. That makes okay. sense. Yes, thank you. So that you. goes back to that slide before where you're, anytime you have decreases, you're going to have increases in other components to regulate ICP and keep it normal until those compensatory mechanisms fail because they're limited. And that's the reason we get increased intracranial pressure and decreased intracranial pressure. Okay, next few slides are kind of important. So if you've been tuning out, tune back in. Um, we said that the brain requires a constant supply of oxygen and glucose. That's not new. Anoxic brain injury is new. How, who's ever heard of an anoxic brain injury? Anoxia, that's not something you hear every day. But it's what happens as a result of low perfusion where your brain is not getting enough oxygen. And um, the result is brain injury or brain death, right? And so um, if you've had time in the picky. Everyone says like, oh, I just, you know, I want to be a picky nurse. And I think that that's great. I, we need really good picky nurses. You're going to see sad stuff in the picky that's going to wear on you. And like one of those things is like, especially right now, what they're seeing a lot of because of COVID is suicide in like your adolescent teens. And so one thing that uh, I don't even know I'm talking, I could have picked like any other example, geez. But um, like, Every year, it seems like there's a kid who tries to hang himself, right? And they end up surviving that hanging, but the result is anoxia or anoxia to the brain hypoxia, where you have brain injury, permanent brain injury, because your brain was not supplied with that continuous supply of glucose because you try to hang yourself. Now, blood cannot get to your brain. And so, and then, you know, your brain is telling your heart, like in your lungs to function somewhat. And so anyways, in that situation, they may survive a hanging, but ultimately be dealing with like permanent brain injury or death from this anoxia. So cerebral blood flow, this is interesting. One, uh, cerebral blood flow, milliliters of blood passing through one gram of brain tissue in a minute and normal cerebral blood flow is 50 milliliters per minute per 100 grams, all right? Um, cerebral blood vessels dilate and they constrict just like any other vessel, right? Anytime they need more cerebral blood pressure, 
And to get to achieve this cerebral blood flow, they're just going to dilate to get that 50 milliliters or they'll constrict to if it's too much, right? Um, all right, let's see here. Anything else that I need to talk about here? Cerebral blood vessels adjust diameter. Any questions about this slide? You can think of the brain the same that you would of any other tissue. It just needs continuous blood flow and this is the amount that it needs, all right? I don't know how much your brain weighs. I wouldn't expect you to know either. Um, Autoregulation. So this is achieved. Cerebral blood flow, we said, is 50 you know, milliliters of blood per minute per how much? 100 grams of brain tissue, right? That is only achieved by MAP, right? What is MAP? Mean arterial pressure. So we're talking about blood flow. Has anybody ever heard of MAP? MAP. All right, great. Mean arterial pressure. This is something that you're going to be looking at when you become, if you become an ICU nurse. And MAP is really, really important. And we concentrate and focus on MAP a lot. We're trying to achieve MAP between 70 millimeters of mercury. And we would never want it to really get higher than 150. If you see a MAP above 150, you're needing to give some major medication to get that MAP down. And if it falls below 70, I had a surgeon, I worked for a surgeon, he would always tell me, if your systolic blood pressure is lower than 80, you're not perfusing the brain, all right? So in heart surgery, we always cared about MAP and systolic blood pressure because that has an immediate impact on your brain perfusion, okay? So he would say systolic blood pressure under 80 sustained, you're not getting cerebral blood flow. You're not getting adequate tissue, uh, tissue oxygenation to the brain. So MAP, if any time it falls below 70, you're not getting that glucose, you're not getting that oxygen that your brain needs, and you're going to have that anoxic brain injury. So what is it? Um, that is MAP, how you calculate it is you take two blood pressure readings, all right? Your most recent two, and if you've been in the ICU, you have something called an art line. That's like that little um, monitor. It's a like blood pressure reading that hangs out in your artery, your radial artery usually, and it's taking your blood pressure every time your heart beats, all right? Every time your blood hits that catheter, it's taking a blood pressure reading. And so you get beat by beat MAP readings from that because it takes two blood pressure readings, the most recent, and it takes the systolic number from the most recent one, and then the last two diastolic readings, and then divides that by three, all right? We're gonna practice this here in a second. But just so it is really important for this exam that you understand how to calculate MAP, all right? Has anyone seen a MAP reading in the hospital? Angelica, what were you guys, why were you guys monitoring MAP? Uh, because my patient was hypotensive, but also he had like six chest tubes. He had uh, respiratory failure. Okay, so what was his MAP? He was in end-stage ARDS, like you could see the fibrotic on his lungs. He needed a lung transplant. Oh man. Yeah, he was... So what was his map hanging out at? Um, so the first day it was pretty good around like 85, they said, which yeah. was good for him. Yeah, that's great. Um, the second day was not so good because he became super hypertensive on us that morning. Okay. His, his, he was on ECMO too. So oh, man. Yeah, it, yeah. Critical care. Um, I want you guys to practice your calculating your map. 
All right, what's your blood pressure usually run? And then let, pretend like you got the exact same value twice and I want you to calculate your math, all right? My blood pressure is really good. So let's treat this like a competition. If you're like, I haven't taken my blood pressure since before nursing school, you can do my map. My blood pressure usually runs like 110 over 70. So figure out what my map is and put it in the chat when you figured it out. So SBP, if you're like, I literally don't even know what this means, these letters, SBP is uh, systolic blood pressure. And then you take two diastolic blood pressures, add all of that together, and then divide by three. Shelby and Angelica and Caitlin and Reka and Sarita. Oh, wait a second. Sarita, I bet you meant, yeah, there you go. And they're all right, 83.3, because you would take 110 plus 70 plus 70 divided by three, all right? That's mine is 83.3. Lily's 78, that's, she beat me, but we both beat CT and that's what's important today, right? <laughs> um, so, I can't remember my last diastolics, I just guessed. Yeah, yeah, me either. I just kind of know what my normally runs. And so that's what's important is understanding this because MAP ultimately impacts cerebral blood flow. You can imagine if your MAP is low and it's under 70%, your, your brain is not, it's just, there's no way for it to get that glucose and the oxygen it needs if your blood is not able to perfuse up to your brain. Does that make sense, you guys? Lily, I'm impressed. 78, fantastic. All right, let's look at this. A year from now, you may be this black lab. Let's look at this guy. Blood pressure reading 73 over 38. <laughs> hey, God, it's me again. You're going to be this black lab a year from now. You're going to be out on your own taking a patient's blood pressure. I don't know where you're going to work, but you'll be taking a blood pressure one of these days and you're going to think, oh, geez, what do I do now? And you're going to hit that blood pressure cuff again and you're going to start praying and just thinking back to acute and chronic and going, why didn't Professor Matheny tell me what to do? So calculate the map for this blood pressure. Calculate the map for this blood pressure. And when you get it, put it in the chat. I'm going to do it too. I'm going to be honest, it's not good, right? I have to check my work because everybody's getting a different number than me, but it's my fault. So far, so good, you guys. If you're getting 70 or 70, 49.6666667, which is 79.7, then you know how to calculate MAP. Keep practicing those problems. All right, so what clinical manifestations would you assess for if God does not answer your bedside prayer and a second reading is exactly the same? What would you do? What other, you're like, okay, assess, right? I, I remember I assess first. What do you assess for? Level of consciousness. Level of consciousness. Why, CT, why does that make sense to assess for? Well, because his brain's not, 
their brain's not getting any perfusion at all. Uh-huh. So the dog opens his eyes and he sees, oh, geez, he's unconscious. What next? What other assessments would make sense? O2. SPO2? I would prefer PAO2. Oh, PAO2. Okay, so here's the deal. That is going to take a while. You know, you're, you're looking at that. That's going to take a few minutes. The other hard thing about um, PAO2 is at this point, you don't even have an arterial blood pressure, really. You don't have like a great one. So yeah, um, I mean, obvious ones, guys, pulse, you know, like just check because is it like, is it strong? Is it thready? You would expect it to be thready, right? Uh, are we getting into shock territory? What would that look like? What kind of, like, we're talking about, we don't even know why the blood pressure is low, but like what compensatory stage of shock signs would you be looking for? And then as it progresses, like which stage of shock are we even in at this point? Yeah, I think we're in the end stages at this point. I mean, they're like, is there any coming back from something this low where you're, you're not oh, getting- Sure, 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 sure. Oh, I mean, it depends. We don't have that much information. If it's like been just a few minutes, yeah, you can come back. But if it's been like- you know, you walked in and who knows how long the patient's been hanging out with a map of 49. Oh my Lord, this is not good for them, you know? Um, so yeah, what other signs and symptoms? Like what are those signs and symptoms of compensatory shock? Cause that's the good one, right? That's whenever like things are still, we can reverse really easily. Well, you want to see if they're like confused, if they can be oriented, like if they know where they are. Uh -huh. um, but if they have, if their level of consciousness, they're passed out, then you can't really, it's already past comp compensatory yeah. stage. Yeah. You would look at that uh, heart rate too, right? I mean, if the blood pressure is this low and the patient's, uh, like CT was saying, if the patient's, you know, unconscious and the blood pressure is this low, uh, we're talking about like late signs and symptoms, right? We're talking about kind of like that more progressive stage where things start dying, <laughs> So uh, your heart rate would probably be low, and that's really not good. So then what priority nursing actions would you take? Airway and breathing are fine. The patient's unconscious, but breathing. You know that they have an airway because they're breathing, but breathing, would it, what would you expect it to be at this point? Normal, high, or low? It should, well, probably low. They, they've been trying to compensate already with the hyper, hyperventilation, and it didn't work. So. Yeah. So high would be good because that means like, oh, good. They're still like compensating for probably the acidosis that's occurring at this point, right? But what it would, it, consistent findings with everything else is probably some hypoventilation and uh, bradyapnea, right? Uh, so then what would you do? What would you do? Run down the hall screaming? Keep praying? Put them on oxygen. <laughs> Yeah, definitely do because you know we can work with a blood pressure there is a blood pressure that means the heart is pumping something so oxygen would be helpful what else call the provider immediately mm, anything you can you okay. get like a vasodilator or the pressure but, but uh, vasopressor Vasopressor would be good. And, you know, um, ideally we're in the ICU and ideally we have all that stuff like ordered and uh, tapered 
Kylie's like, can we call a rabbit response yet? Yes. Yeah, because, and, um, you know, here's the deal with calling the provider is normally you don't have like their direct phone number. We're calling, especially at OU, we're calling a service. 45 minutes later, the resident calls you back and is like, hey, what are you talking about? Okay, let me talk to my attending. And then we're talking like hours later before something actually comes of it. So rapid response is much better. And um, yeah, getting them started on pressors, lots of fluid boluses, oxygen. If they're not mechanically ventilated, you're gonna get them mechanically ventilated ASAP. So you're starting to think like life support at this point. What do we need? What functions do we need to support? We've got to support the brain, got to support the heart and lungs, the kidneys. Those are your vital organs, right? Without that stuff, you're going to die. So, um, and you would be another good assessment always is uh, urine outfit. No one ever thinks about that. It's not like the first thing that you would look at, but if you're not producing urine, that's because you're not perfusing to your kidneys. All right, so anytime you see a drop in urine output, it's because it's a volume issue or a perfusion issue. You need to be thinking about that. Now, if you have a patient with end-stage renal disease and they're not producing urine, I mean, they And before we advance, so, so, and I haven't had my critical care clinical yet, so I'm not sure. But for these patients, are these things kind of like standing orders if they need them? Like the pressors and stuff like that? Well... Not really, but if you're in critical care, they ha they generally have a lot of medications that um, are on order and they're uh, they're titrated, and so the nurse is kind of responsible for going in and going, oh, that map is low. I can start epi. Let's go ahead and do that right now, and it will actually say epi or vasopressor or whatever to achieve a map of seventy or greater. You know or like a systolic blood pressure of 120 or greater, um, something like that. So yeah, um, they'll give you ranges and then the nurse titrates that stuff. And that's why people like critical care because there's a lot of uh, autonomy. Peyton said, one of my patients had MAPS in the 60s after surgery and they put him on an epidrip. So what would epi do, Peyton? Why would they have put him on an epidrip for his low MAP? Um, it helped bring his blood pressure up a little bit. Okay, a um, bit. um, it, by the time I left, he was at like 85 nineties. Um, and his goal, the provider said his goal was like 86 to nineties. Oh. So, and they removed the art line the day after that. Nice. So yeah, oh, good. but it was just, he was struggling to come out after his, yeah. he had a spinal fusion. Um, but he's all good now. So wow. I would be thinking like, Ooh, is he getting a little shocky? Um, what does epi do? How does it function to increase blood pressure in that situation? Are we running out of time? I talked so much. It's a vasoconstrictor. Vasoconstrictor, and it's also going to activate your heart rate, right? So it's going to, remember cardiac output. Cardiac output equals heart rate times stroke volume. So epi works by causing or vasoconstricting, but it increases that heart rate, which has a direct impact on cardiac output. And that has a direct impact on MAP. We are getting real nerdy. The reason this is here, MAP equals MAP minus ICP is your cerebral perfusion pressure. Now your MAP normal range is 70 to 100. Normal ICP, 5 to 20. I believe on the earlier side, it said 5 to 15. So I'm going to clarify that. I'll have to look that up later. And then normal cerebral perfusion pressure is 60 to 100, okay? 
So like you can see here, does anybody, can anyone tell me where's the ICP on these two things that I gave you? Where is the ICP? There's a lot of numbers, a lot of different, you know. 18. It's right here. So, oh gosh. Um, and then where's your map? Who can tell me where the map is? The map is right beside the uh, blood pressure. 79. Right so. here, 79 is your map. All right, so calculate this person's CPP based off of these two things. Put it in the chat. 50. Map is 79. That's fine, right? We like that map because that's fine. It's above 70, and that's what's important. Minus 18. 79 minus 18 is 61. So these are normal ranges to know, okay? All of these are normal ranges to know for this exam. I would not put this on here if it was not important. And I, it, it would really uh, be wise to know how to calculate all of the stuff that we've spent time on today as well. So anytime your CPP is less than 50, that's going to cause ischemia, neuronal death. Look at this. CPP of less than 30 is incompatible with life. And that's where we start getting those anoxic brain injuries where you have like, uh, you have a pulse, you have a respiratory rate, but you do not have any brain function whatsoever. All right. There's nothing that we can really do for that patient. Is ICP supposed to be 15? Lily, I know I um I'm gonna have to look that up. I had just said you know, there's a discrepancy there. Um guys make sure that I do that, okay? So you can see like this happens. It happens after CP why would it happen after CPR? Anoxia after CPR. If they're not doing enough um breaths or oh, they're not enough your compressions aren't strong enough yeah compressions are real weak right because this is map we're talking about map and so that's those Gray's anatomy compressions where they're like you know five foot away from the patient trying to do effective compressions um what about after a heart attack how would that happen heart can't beat and get the blood up yeah, so the heart's like, you know, remember, like your heart muscle's dying, your left ventricle's dying. And so it stops being able to generate like any kind of contractility and cardiac output. And that's going to have a direct impact on your MAP, which then has a direct impact on your CPP, right? Your cerebral perfusion pressure. Okay, enough. We're going to move on <laughs> to elevated ICP, sustained ICP of 20. So we said that the sustained Part of that is what really makes it important because when you sneeze, you have an elevated increase in intracranial pressure. There's so many different causes. We're not even going to get into the causes until the very end. If we don't get there, uh, well, we are going to get there because I'm going to lecture time then. So anytime you have an increase of one of the three, you have increased brain tissue that's going to eventually result in elevated ICP. You have an increase in blood, right? Cerebral blood that's going to eventually cause increase in ICP. You have an increase in cerebral spinal fluid that's eventually gonna cause an elevated ICP, right? Even if you are a little baby and you have some capacity for your sutures to move apart and your fontanelle to kind of bulge out, even then you will eventually experience an elevated ICP if that's not, if we don't do anything about it, right? So um, anytime, think about back to that patient, right? The, this patient. If we said that the ICP moves up from, we said it was the cerebral perfusion pressure 61, 
Well, let's say that now the ICP is 28. What does that do to the CPP? 28, now we're talking about 51, right? A cerebral perfusion pressure of 51. And we said, look here, that uh, 50 is associated with ischemia and neuronal death, all right? So when you start messing with this ICP, it doesn't take much elevation to start really causing major issues to the brain, uh, brain supply of oxygen and glucose. Am I making any sense at this point? Okay, stop me if you have questions. Um, all right, so elevated ICP, then it makes sense that that would decrease your cerebral perfusion pressure since we're getting this number by MAP minus ICP. Um, and by the way, we can measure ICP. We don't normally, but if patients are having issues with one of these three things, then we're, we're looking at ICP, right? Um, all right, so then you have a decrease in brain compliance, and that's talking about that brain tissue compliance, their, its ability to kind of decompress or expand. So when that, you have a loss of that brain compliance, very small changes will cause an increase in uh, ICP elevation, all right? And that eventually can result in brainstem herniation. Have you heard of brainstem herniation before? So brainstem herniation, what is it? Where does it herniate into? What happens is you have this, your brain, your blood, and your cerebral spinal fluid, and pressure is building and building and building inside of this closed box. There's one opening, and it's your spinal column, right? Your spinal column. And so what happens is at the base of your skull, the pressure is so high inside of your cranium that it pushes your brainstem down into your spinal column, all right? Um, there's a picture of it soon. Uh, don't worry about it. Getting ahead of myself. So we want to prevent that because that's obviously irreversible. Your brainstem is really important for many reasons. Yeah, Joy Stella? No, sorry. I accidentally. Oh, that's okay. That's okay. Um, so your brainstem is really important because that's where like your respiratory centers at and everything, right? And so once that herniates down into your spinal column from elevated ICP, we're talking about irreversible issues and you're not going to live. That's life-threatening. So before we get to that life-threatening brainstem herniation point, the Signs and symptoms of elevated ICP, how could we tell that Angelica was starting to have increased intracranial pressure? It's because she would have a change in her LOC, the normal stuff, right? She'd start getting confused. She'd get progressively more and more disoriented until she eventually became lethargic, sluggish, comatose, right? Um, you'd start having changes in vital signs. And we're going to talk a lot about Cushing's triad. And if there's like one thing to come into this exam, having like an excellent understanding of, it's Cushing's triad. There's ocular signs. Have you guys seen any abnormal ocular signs? What's normal ocular like activity? What When you shine a light into your eyes, what does it do? It accommodates. It accommodates, right? That's accommodations when you put things closer and your pupil accommodates to focus on that thing. But whenever you shine a light into your eye, what do your pupils do? They constrict. They constrict to light. And whenever you're in a really dark place, what's going to happen? They're going to dilate. So if you shine a light into someone's eye and it doesn't constrict, it stays dilated or it has no response at all, 
that's called non-activity, right? They're non-reactive pupils. They're sluggish. That's all signs of elevated intracranial pressure because there's pressure on those nerves that, you know, that's all I got right now. So the other thing is when you have a blown pupil, <laughs> um, innervate that, I don't know. It's fine. And in my course of else, she didn't know what she was talking about. Um, when you have a blown pupil, that means that your like pupil sizes are really dilated. And then on top of that, if they're sluggish and non-reactive, those are signs of, again, elevated ICP. Um, you'll see decreased motor functioning and especially posturing is something to know, right? Decreased motor functioning is if I said, hey, CT, um, squeeze my hands, squeeze my hands. And he was going like this and he was able to respond but his motor strength wasn't as expected. It wasn't strong. Um, and then I said, hey, push against my hands with your hands, push against them. And he was able to just barely do it, but not really push um, the way that I would expect him to. That's decreased motor functioning. And you would do it with your legs too, right? Push, uh, push against my hands with your feet. Um, but posturing is really when you start seeing intense levels of ICP buildup then you're gonna get the first one A, that's decorticate posturing. And that's where you have flexion of your elbows due to corticate posturing. You have flexion of your elbows, uh, flexion of your wrist and your uh, hands are in little balls, okay? And then decorticate or decerebate posturing is bad. That's where like, we're really getting into very high ICP so anytime you see a patient doing decerebrate posturing, which is D on this chart, um, and what happens is like you do some kind of stimulus to them, right? Where, uh, you know, usually it used to be the sternal rub. Now they say don't do that. Um, but you give them a stimulus and in response to that stimulus, they don't have the elbow flexion, their elbows hyperextend, and then they're like, um, doing this, that is bad news. That means that they have really elevated ICP that's resulting in some major issues with brain function, okay? Um, headache, you guys have had headaches. Just because you have a headache doesn't mean that you have elevated ICP, but if someone does have an, a headache and they have a, you know, some of these other issues, it could mean that they have uh, elevated ICP. Which picture is decorticate? Decorticate's A. And D is decerebrate, and it's labeled at the very, um, uh, if you like X out of full screen, it's labeled on this slide as well. Is that like a, a continuum where like A kind of is mild, or not, it's not gonna be mild, but like it goes from like A towards D? Yeah, so um, yes, you will see A. I've seen A during CPR before when we're doing chest compressions and the brain is not getting adequate perfusion. And so the patient starts going into decorticate. And then once they have like spontaneous uh, what is it, return of spontaneous circulation, they're not posturing anymore, right? They'll, they'll be fine. And for a second, there was some issue with uh, oxygenation. So decorticate's not good. And it means what you should think when you think of decorticate is the brain's not getting oxygen. And that's a big deal. Maybe cerebral perfusion pressure is decreased or something. But decerebrate means that there's like some permanent brain issues that are happening where the there's tissue injury, ischemia from lack of cerebral perfusion, okay? 
from the elevated ICP. Does that make sense? What specific type of vomiting pattern would you see with ICP, elevated ICP? It's vomiting not preceded by nausea. And so this happens a lot in kids with meningitis where all of a sudden they're just vomiting and they're not nauseous. If you ever hit your head, you have a concussion and all of a sudden you just start vomiting, that's from elevated ICP. It's not because you're nauseous. It's not because you have gastroenteritis. It's because you have elevated intracranial pressure. Um, like I said, Cushing's triad is a really big deal. Um, it is how you tell that a patient with elevated ICP is about to die, okay? They're about to herniate. Whenever you have a systolic blood pressure that's creeping up, all right, and you go in there over a few hours and it's that systolic blood pressure is creeping up and creeping up and creeping up, that's from elevated ICP. This is triad. There's three things that happen to the vital signs. The widened pulse pressure is, this is specific to Cushing's triad. You're not typically going to see uh, this widened pulse pressure situation happening. So write down these blood pressures, if you have a pen and paper, write down uh, 135 over 80, and then comma, and then do 147 over 80, comma, 153 over 80. All right, if this were three different blood pressure readings from like eight o'clock, nine o'clock, 10 o'clock, what this is, is your systolic blood pressure is slowly but surely increasing and that diastolic pressure is not moving, right? Now your pulse pressure, that is like a, a widened pulse pressure is the difference between your systolic over your diastolic. So normally your pulse pressure is like 40 millimeters of mercury between your systolic and your diastolic. So widened pulse pressure is when it that number starts getting higher, right? So in our first one, uh, what is it? That's like uh, 55, right? And then in the second one I gave you, oh my gosh, maths, uh, 67 is your pulse pressure. And then in the last one, uh, my brain today, what is that? 70 something, 73? Is that what it is? Okay, great. Um, so that's what we mean by that widening pulse pressure is where your systolic blood pressure is creeping up and your diastolic's not moving at all. Now look at the other thing, bradycardia, right? So your heart rate slows down and your heart starts beating super effectively. Well, that's what's causing this elevated systolic blood pressure because it's pumping. And when it's pumping, it's pumping super forcefully to get blood out to your vital organs, all right? It's your, your heart's way of saying, the brain's not getting enough perfusion. I need to pump really effectively and it's slowing down. Um, so you're, what you're gonna feel on the pulse is it's slow. Maybe it's 55 beats a minute, maybe it's 50, but every time it beats, it's like, I mean, coming out of their skin, you know, cause it's so forceful. And then altered respirations, and that part varies a lot. There's a lot of different alterations in respiration. So if you looked at CT and you're like, wow, his breathing pattern actually is not regular, all right? And it's like he's uh, having periods of apnea or he's having Kussball or whatever. Um, and then on top of that, he's having this widening pulse pressure, elevated systolic blood pressure, and the bradycardia with a full bounding pulse. That is Cushing's triad. What questions do you have about Cushing's triad?
On the widened pulse, if it involves the systolic and the diastolic, it wouldn't be Cushing's triad. Is that correct? Right. That's okay. just like elevated blood pressure, right? Because generally speaking, those two numbers are going to move together and they're going to be about 40 millimeters mercury apart from each other. So when one's moving and the, the systolic blood pressure is moving and the diastolic isn't, then that's when you know that you have a widened pulse pressure. Good question. Anything else, you guys? Like I said, very important to know. Number one for the test, but number two, because this is really how you tell my patient with elevated ICP is really decompensating. And we're now looking at brainstem herniation is what we're really at, at the doorstep of brainstem herniation. So in PEDS, you'll see that tense bulging fontanelle until it closes. Once it's closed, you're not going to be, you're not going to feel that. You're just going to feel bone, just like you feel at your, um, on your head. Separated cranial sutures, those are those lines where the bone plates are coming together. When those become separated and you're able to feel space between those bones, that is separated cranial sutures. An irritable, high-pitched cry, um, it's like very shrill is how I would describe it. And it's these kids are very, very difficult to comfort because they're having a lot of pain, right? Neurological pain and uh, a bad headache. Increased occipital circumference, that's only if they still have those open sutures and fontanelles. Once those close, you're really not going to see that. Um, and then distended scalp veins. This kid, you can see, definitely has some hydrocephaly. He's definitely got that increased um, occipital circumference. And I don't really see too much distension, I guess, maybe a little bit on the side here. Can you guys see my mouse? Okay, so you can see that. Um, changes in feeding, what that means is that they're not going to be very hungry. Their appetite's not going to be great because they, any time a, a baby is in pain or having issues with like vital signs, they're not going to want to eat. And then sunsetting sign, this is where your eyes, uh, their eyes uh, look like a setting sun, right? And it's because of pressure on that uh, optic nerve and like the nerves of their, that really just the optic nerve, I'm sure. Okay, great. So know those. Um, all right, what I want to say here, I want to say, let me see what I want to say about this slide. I want to go straight into ICP monitoring. Yep. So ICP monitoring, uh, this is your gold standard for figuring out someone's ICP, all right? Not everybody is going to get an ICP monitor. Like just because you're admitted to the hospital, you don't see these that often, right? That it takes certain criteria. Patients, anytime a patient has a GCS less than eight and anytime they have an abnormal CT MRI that indicates that there could be an elevated intracranial pressure, they're gonna get ICP monitoring. And what we'll do is we'll put this ventricular Ventriculostomy. Does that sound right? Ventriculostomy? Ventriculostomy. It's a device. It goes in the ventricle of the brain, right? And so it's sensing the intracranial pressure inside the brain. And obviously, anytime you have something inserted directly into the cranium through bone and it's accessing anything, you're going to be high risk for infection. Um, do you guys remember GCS? Would you know how to figure out your own GCS? So what you do is you would go, Kelsey, Kelsey, 
And if she opens her eyes, that's spontaneous eye opening, right? Or actually that's to voice if she were closing it. Uh, and then you had to say like, Kelsey, open your eyes. And she opened them, she'd get a three. If she's like, right now she's just watching me, that's because she has spontaneous eye opening. Verbal response, you say, tell me your name. And she says, Angelica Motor. And you're like, you're very confused, right? Um, if she says toaster, then that's inappropriate words. If it's gurgle, gurgle, then that's inappropriate, incomprehensible sounds, right? Um, the thing about Glasgow Coma Score is even a toaster gets a GCS of three, right? Because you could do all those things to a toaster and they would have none, none, none. So they'd still get a score of a three. Anytime you have a score less than, I believe, eight, we're talking about a comatose patient, right? Like that we are in the cusp of comatose. Um, and look, the motor response, abnormal extension. What do you think that means, you guys? Now that you know about posturing, which one are we talking about? Um, decerebrate. Yes, decerebrate. And then what about three, abnormal flexion? That's decorticate, right? Where you have abnormal flexion, you're flexing your elbows, flexing your wrist. The cerebra is abnormal extension. So that, that you can see already that one's much more serious just because the GCS score is actually less if you have a cerebrate posturing. <laughs> Withdrawing from pain, localized to pain, obeys commands. All right, any questions about GCS? Because we're gonna get into ICP monitoring quite a bit. So this monitoring device, goes into your brain and your patient will actually have this. If, if we need to monitor ICP because they're having any issue with it at all, it's gonna be inserted directly into their brain through the brain tissue and we're gonna access the ventricle and you have lateral ventricles that this is gonna go into. By the way, it doesn't always go into a ventricle, it can go into other places, but that's what I want you to know about. The benefit of this is look, we can see the exact pressure that's happening inside of their brain so we can see minute to minute, like real time pressure increases. If you like slam them down and put the head of the bed to zero, what do you think that would do to their ICP? Increase it. Increase it, right? If you put their head of the bed up at 90 degrees, what do you think that would do to their uh, ICP? Decrease it, right? It would decrease it because it's decreasing like CSF and cerebral blood flow, making it harder for those things to get up. Um, what if you walked in and they were like doing the Valsalva maneuver, they were like trying to poop and they couldn't. And so they were bearing down. What would that do to their ICP? Increase. Right. You would be able to look at the monitor and go, oh, huh, funny enough, there's a moderate elevation. They're bearing down. Um, so we can use this to see, I don't need you, period. I do not need you to be able to read an ICP monitor. So this strip is just to show you what we're looking at and we get these little waveforms. I don't need you to know what to do with these waveforms at all, okay? Um, so monitors the pressure in the intracranial space directly. We can also, with this device, we can and we will remove CSF, all right? We can and we will remove CSF. Most of the time, we're not just monitoring pressure unless pressure is super stable and we can get rid of it. But, um, Anytime they have increased intracranial pressure, do you think that we're just like, oh, look, they have increased intracranial pressure. That's cool. 
um, no, we're doing something with that. And the one that we can really manipulate easily is we can drain CSF to regulate that ICP. All right. Now we don't want massive amounts of CSF to be drained, right? Does that make sense? We would never want to be like, okay, we got all the CSF out. Now we can go to lunch. No, because the CSF is pretty important supporting the brain and all the structures inside of your central nervous system. So we will do small amounts of CSF. It can be continuous drainage or it can be intermittent drainage. Um, I've had patients with this who, you know, they hang out in bed, they're completely immobilized and we're removing like three milliliters of CSF an hour. And um, I have patients that this is shut off and then every hour or two we come in, we look at the ICP and then we remove a certain amount of CSF depending on the, doc the physician's orders, okay? The reason this is important, we can also sample CSF. And so that means that like we're taking the CSF out to continuously monitor and send it to the lab to check and make sure nothing's growing in that CSF. We do not want anything to be growing because if growth would indicate what? Infection. Infection, meningitis. So, and this is, do you think that this is a really great uh, fluid for things to grow in? Yes, because it's very high in glucose concentration and it's warm and moist, right? Warm, moist, and glucose, you're talking about bacterial growth for sure. So, um, and then we can also give intraventricular drugs. So your patients who need, have meningitis, we can give them antibiotics straight into this device as well. Okay, so you can think of it almost like an IV, only it's not intravascular, it's inside of the brain itself and we're able to sample pull CSF out, we can give medications through this as well. Um, so the nursing management, anytime you have a patient with an ICP device, and if you're going to read part of your textbook for this, this is the thing that I really, I asked a ton of questions about, okay? So this, it has a little transducer, and that means like, it's just like your art lines or, you know, I, I don't know what else your, what other monitoring devices you have, but there's this little transducer and that's really important because that transducer has has to be level with the foramen of Monroe I believe is what it what it is but that the place that you the landmark is the tragus of your ear okay the tragus of your ear is this little you have maybe got in your teens or 20s um, a tragus piercing and that's that little piece of cartilage okay so we want that to be in alignment with the transducer that this ICP monitor is set up to. You don't want it any higher and you don't want it any lower because it's going to give you a bad reading if it's not in complete alignment with where it's supposed to be. Um, and then that means that you also need to post a sign to your bed. What else do you think that means? If this thing has to be level with the tragus of your ear, what other implications do you have there? You probably don't want the patient to be doing a lot of moving around. We don't want the patient to be moving around very much, right? Maybe here and there, maybe if they're shifting in bed, not a big deal. I had a patient who, a, a little kid that had this, and the mom got the kid up to use the bathroom. And so the kid like stood up and walked to the bathroom. And the whole time this transducer was like, you know, not at the tragus of the ear. Well, what happens is number one, it's not reading your ICP uh, accurately. But the second thing is that this is set up to continuous drainage and you're just like up. 
then this all of your CSF is going to flow out of your body. And you're going to have a market decrease in ICP because now this is like an open drain system. Um, so that's why it's really important. So post a sign above the bed. When we're positioning these patients, we want to do things real gradually and real slowly and gently. We don't want to like increase the head of their bed. We don't want to like be throwing them around their bed. Not that you do that with any patient, but this is like real delicate, soft kid, kid hands, right? Like uh, kid gloves. Okay, so um, what questions do you have about the intermittent or continuous drainage of CSF? Anything yet? Okay, and then obviously this is high risk for infection. We already covered that, right? So what are signs and symptoms of um, meningitis that you're gonna be looking out for? Severe headache, um, fever, above fever, 100. Severe headache, what else did you say? Nuchal rigidity. Right, that's neck stiffness. What else? There's other ones. Oh, sensitivity to light. Photophobia, yes, um, that's another one. And then you're gonna start seeing all of those things that happen with ICP, right? Elevated ICP. Um, now we should be able to detect that really easily because they have a freaking device. I mean, how much better could it get? But you could see that vomiting that's not preceded by nausea and stuff like that. CSF is generally clear and it's generally colorless. Now there's times where you're gonna have bloody CSF. Can you see the CSF here? This is the monitoring device. This is the whole situation here, okay? And so you have that bag. Do you see the bag that's hanging with the red fluid? That's CSF, all right? Now before it goes into the bag, it's going into that clear cylinder that's plastic, that hard cylinder that's right above it that also has CSF in it. Now, is this normal looking CSF to you? I said it was clear and it's colorless, right? So this is not clear, it's kind of opaque and it's bloody, it's red, right? So what do you think could be happening in this patient just from looking at the CSF? Hemorrhage, endocrine. They had either a hemorrhage, a brain bleed, or maybe they had some kind of craniectomy surgery and they're, you know, they're having some CSF, the uh, blood in their CSF from that. So there's times where that would be expected and you're not gonna freak out if there's bloody CSF, if they had a brain bleed or if they just had craniectomy surgery, right? Um, but generally speaking, uh, the fluid is gonna go from their monitor, from their drain into this clear cylinder and you're gonna be measuring very carefully how much CSF you're getting out every hour because we never want huge dumps of CSF. Now your patient, depending on the patient, they might be making like 20 milliliters of CSF. And if their ICP is really high, then we might want all 20 of that out, right? Because we don't wanna add any CSF into their system. We want all of that out and we just want them to be regulating with a normal amount. We don't wanna be adding anything. So your physician's gonna order, your provider will order how much output is uh, they want from the CSF. And normally it will be a certain amount of CSF or to maintain a certain amount of ICP. So it's very, uh, you, what you do, there's like that little white stop cock I'm going to show you. You have this clear cylinder. This is all CSF. You're going to collect this over an hour, two hours, right? And then you're going to go in there and measure it. And you're going to look at the characteristics. So I would say like, I don't know how much that is. Let's say 20 milliliters of red CSF, right? Bloody CSF. And then now that I have measured it and recorded it, I'm gonna take, where's my mouse? Okay, 
I'm going to take this white stopcock right here. You can see it's turned up. That's because it's closed. Um, you can open it and that will all drain down into that bag so that you can start uh, like recording the next hour or whatever it is. Okay. Makes sense. That I have a question. Yeah. So why would your CSF fluid be like a yellowish color? I had a patient in peds and you could tell, I'm so sorry, that was probably no, really loud. don't be. Um, she had, a, you could tell her head was really swollen uh -huh. uh, and they were draining her CSF, but it was like yellowish. Yeah. Color. I don't know, that's a good question. I'll have to look into that. Yellow CSF, I mean, it could honestly probably be like proteins in the CSF that aren't supposed to really be there. That might give it a yellow color. Um, that happens sometimes, but I'll look into that. Will you email me that question? Yeah, thank you. No problem. Anytime you see cloudy CSF, that's indicating an infection. You know, you would really want to be on top of that too. Okay, so when in terms of like uh, your collaborative care, they're really focused on why is there increased intracranial pressure. And then what can we do about it? Um, there is part of your reading where it talks about cranial surgery. So I'm just gonna ask you the questions that you need to know, all right? Have you ever heard of burr holes? B-U-R-R, burr holes. What is it, Angelica? You're like, I don't know, I've just heard of Where it. they drill like burr holes in your head so that you yeah. have the ability to lose, like have, so that the pressure isn't so bad, basically. Right, right. It's basically uh, puts a little hole in the closed box, right? What the doctor didn't do. <laughs> what the doctor didn't do to kill Derek Shepard. Nice. Great. Again, if you have HBO, I can't recommend enough the Nick. I mean, I stop what you're doing right now. Drop out of nursing school and go watch the Nick. It's so good. Um. But yeah, they do burr holes on it. Great, perfect. Report back whenever you're done. We'll re-enroll you, Brady. Don't follow my advice, you guys, please. I don't want to get sued. Um, okay, burr holes are little holes. It's to relieve intracranial pressure. Um, the other thing that you're going to see a lot of is, <laughs> uh, no, it will not help you at all with family focus, I don't think. There's, no. Okay, we got to get back on task. On task. Um, so, Burr holes, craniotomy. What is a craniotomy? Uh, it's where they open up the skull and they actually are in the brain tissue. They open up the skull to get into access the brain tissue. Okay, that's different than a craniectomy. What is a craniectomy? They remove a part of the skull bone. They remove, and it's usually like a square. It's usually like a nice little square bone flap. And they'll take that bone flap out. And so they may be relieving pressure. They definitely needed to access the brain tissue for whatever reason. And now they have this bone flap and that they're gonna take that flap off to help regulate ICP. A lot of times what they'll do with that flap, they're gonna keep it healthy because they'll eventually wanna put it back on. Otherwise the patient's gonna need like a metal plate to protect their brain tissue. Um, so they'll try and keep that and preserve that bone flap. So they might actually implant it in the, the patient's stomach um, to keep it like nice and, you know, healthy. You might actually see it in a freezer. Like if you work in a hospital and there's a 
refrigerator or with a freezer, you might actually see those bone flaps in the freezer with the patient's name on it. And that's a craniectomy where they removed a, a part of the actual skull, okay? Um, typically, again, they're gonna try and save that so that they can put it back on. Um, and craniotomy is where they're just accessing the brain, but they're not removing any of the skull, okay? So they're gonna close everything up and suture the patient back up and everything. Does that make sense? Um, so when would you see a craniotomy? I saw one in surgery, but I have no idea why we were there. Okay, but it was for brain surgery? And yeah, we were, it was a full craniotomy, like everything, it was all out. Wow. Wow, and they do wow. craniotomies for like brain tumors? They do craniotomies for some brain tumors, right? It depends on where the brain tumor's at. Cause if it's, it has to be accessible to the craniotomy incision. And so um, like, that's that's why we talked about transphenoidal hypophysectomies, right? Because you're not gonna do a, a craniotomy for that procedure because the pituitary gland is not accessible by like a traditional craniotomy approach, right? You would have to like sift through all that brain tissue. And at that point, you're basically talking about uh, like a <laughs> lobotomy, you know what I mean? Uh, you might not know what I mean. That's an interesting thing to Google. Um, okay, so golly, this is important. So if your patient has elevated ICP and they are not able to uh, ventilate, like it's actually impacting their ability to ventilate, then that's when you would see that life support being used. Mechanically ventilate them. That's intubation. If it's long-term, then they might require a trach. But um, the order is going to be to maintain PaO2 at 100 millimeters of mercury or greater, okay? So remember, PaO2 is normally, the normal range for us is 80 to 100. And patients with elevated ICP, you're going to see that order being greater than 100 uh, millimeters of mercury for PO2. We don't care so much about PaCO2. We just want that in the normal range. But it's really important that we have lots of oxygen going to that brain, okay? That's actually going to enhance cerebral blood flow and cause vasodilation, all those things. So we really want to do that. Um, all right. Professor okay. McGaney? Yes, ma'am. Um, with the PaO2 at 100, is uh -huh. that, are you saying that we that we would need to keep um, like we would want to reach that level during those procedures during the craniotomy and well I'm saying that like in general you're out on like your um, ICU unit and this patient ha has like elevated ICP maybe they had surgery maybe they didn't okay I gotcha mechanically ventilated then that order is going to be for um PaO2 to be above so how do you manage that how do you actually accomplish that number a vent okay but what part of it we talked about vent settings I taught uh, it myself so FiO2 FiO2 right concentration of oxygen you're just going to increase that FiO2 to accomplish a PaO2 of 100 millimeters or greater you guys are so smart. You ever just think about how smart you are? I hope you do. Um, okay, so two medications to know for this exam, mannitol, oh, mannitol. This thing, this medication, this and hypertonic saline are your 3%, 5%, 9% sodium chloride solutions. 
you're not going to give those with very high quantities at all. You're going to give them slow, okay? You're never going to give a bolus of 3%, 5%, 9% sodium chloride because it's going to cause this massive osmotic gradient where fluid is leaving all of the tissues, brain, all of them, and it's depriving all of your tissues of fluid and it's pulling and pulling and pulling. You're going to give mannitol in this hypertonic saline solution and your patient's going to start peeing like they have diabetes insipidus, all right? You're going to be like, what did I just do? Oh my goodness gracious, this is so much urine. It looks like free water. You're going to think, this patient, I just caused this patient to have diabetes insipidus. It's not that. It's that the amount of osmo the osmotic gradient that you've just created is super high. And so they're getting water pulled from everything. That's why it's really effective at treating elevated ICP because it's going to cause that brain decompression, right? That um, uh, like all of the fluids are going to leave the brain. And so that's why we give this really slow because we don't want that to happen suddenly or it will really drop the ICP. But that's why it's an effective uh, medication to manage elevated ICP, all right? So what does that mean? If you give mannitol or hypertonic saline, what do you think your nursing care is going to look like? What's the patient at risk for? Dehydration. Dehydration. So how are you going to know that they're dehydrated? Uh, eyes and nose. Uh, skin turgor. Skin turgor. Eyes and nose. Skin turgor. Yes. What else? Eyes and nose. And there's one other thing that's... The creatinine or bun levels. Oh, okay. That's the last time any of you say bun. B-U-N. B-U-N. Sorry. So weird because like sometimes we're like, oh yeah, MAP. And sometimes we're like, no, it's M-A-P. But don't say bun anymore. Say B-U-N. Um, B-type, no, wait. Oh my gosh. I feel like my brain is just, it's okay, Brady. Well, you're nitrogen, right? What'd you say? B-U-N is a blood urea nitrogen. Urea nitrogen. Thank you. Yeah, so um, yes. What else, you guys? There's something else that's pretty important. Hypotension. Hypotension, blood pressure, and your electrolytes, right? <laughs> um, so yes, eyes and nose. You're going to do diligent eyes and nose whenever you're giving mannitol because they can really, it's going to be like diabetes insipidus all over again. They're going to be peeing so much. So real diligent eyes and nose. You're going to be monitoring that ICP blood pressure, you're going to be looking for dehydration in their skin, their mucous membranes, their blood pressure, and their electrolytes, right? Because we can really easily get into like hyper, uh, hypernatremia. Oh my gosh. Remember how that just never leaves you? You're just going to always have to know about fluid and electrolyte issues. Um, dexamethasone, that can uh, help increase uh, elevated ICP. And then obviously, anytime you have elevated ICP, they are high risk for seizures. So you want to go ahead and do, um, you know, seizure precautions, but also um, medications that are like anti-seizure medications, right? Um, and then you can help decrease the metabolic demand of the brain for that glucose and oxygen by giving things like barbiturates and antipyretics, right? If, the, if there's a fever, that's only going to increase the brain's demand for oxygen and glucose because it's the metabolic demand of the brain increases. So you want to do, you want to treat that fever and uh, give antipyretics, maybe even prophylactically to make sure that they're not doing that. Barbiturates are helpful too. Here's your pupils thing. Um, that does a pretty good job of explaining everything you need to know about that. Um, again, 
if I haven't said it enough times, the brain needs a constant supply of glucose. So this patient might not actually be able to eat, right? They might not actually be able to like in have adequate oral intake. So what are you going to do? An NG tube. Address their nutritional needs. What did you say, Angelica? An NG tube. An NG tube. I want you right now to put on your notes. No NG tube for uh, bacillar skull fractures. Do you remember? Rem do you remember learning about NG tube insertion? And they said, hopefully, like when patients have skull fractures, it's I don't know. I used to print out this picture of like an NG tube in the actual brain, and it was like wrapped all in the brain because there's no bone to protect the brain from that NG that hard plastic from going straight into the brain. So you want to, that's contraindicated, all right? That's when the patient would get an oral tube or OG tube would be what you would want. Or that might actually be when they need um, IV nutrition. I have no words today. I just don't. Um, nutrition. The parasterol nutrition. Thank you. Thank you. you, said you no, class. What'd you say, Caitlin? No NG tube on what? Bacillar skull fractures. I'll write it in the chat. Thank you. I am not kidding. Like this is this is serious. Um, is that that with all skull fractures? Okay, just that one because this is where like you're driving and someone rear-ends you and you like hit the steering wheel and it breaks the bones like in your nose and like in your skull in that area. Um, and what's going to happen is you're going to end up like with bruises right here, right? And um, trauma, like facial trauma. So anytime you have facial trauma, if it's like cosmetic surgery, if you broke your nose, if you got hit in the face with a football, I had a classmate in high school who's, he got hit in the face with one of those shock pucks, you, you know, like building track. Those things weigh like 50 pounds or something. And he got hit right in the face with one. So that would be contraindicated. Transphenoidal hypophysectomy, they shouldn't need one. I mean, unless there's like some kind of crazy situation, but I would say just put an OG tube down, you know, better safe than sorry on that. Um, now, here's the deal. You can have other types of skull fractures, right? You can have a skull fracture back here. And if that's the case, this is called a parietal skull fracture behind your ear. Would it be contraindicated if they said put an NG tube on that patient? there's not that same risk of it going into their brain, all right? So in that situation, it's really just facial trauma, bacillar skull fractures. If they have raccoon eyes, you're gonna say, no way, all right, OG tube. Um, so internal skull fractures, yeah, and like in the front. All right, perform LOC check. What is LOC? Level of consciousness. Level of consciousness. Right, so how do you check for LOC? Do you know your name? Oriented, or, if they're to the time, place, where they are. Yeah, this is nitpicky. LOC is like, are they arousable, right? So if Angelica is asleep and I say, Angelica, and she like opens her eyes and then she stays awake, she's, you know, awake. She's not comatose. But if she like opens her eyes and then goes back to sleep, what is that? Lazy. Lethargy. Lethargy, however you pronounce it. That's post-test coma, right? That's called lethargy right? Um, so if your patient cannot stay awake, that's lethargy. That's not conscious. That's lethargic. 
And if you're like, Angelica, open your eyes, Angelica, open your eyes. And she just isn't even responding to that. That's comatose, right? That's unarousable. Um, probably not comatose. I mean, we need to do some other things, but not arousable. So that's all different than orientation because orientation is tell me your name. Where are you at? What are you doing right now? What day, the, who's president of the United States? At this point, we're like, we don't even know. My gosh, it's Biden. Um, all right, neuroassessments, that's that like, you'll say um, squeezing your hands, right? We want them to squeeze our hands. Now, listen, whenever they are like late into this elevated ICP game, and like they have brain death, they have, you know, it's not looking good. What's gonna happen is their family's gonna come in and they're gonna put their hand in their loved one's hands and the loved one will instinctively squeeze it. That's like a very primal, you can do that and still have really significant brain death. Um, and it's very confusing for the patient's family. So that's also means that like, if they're there and you tell them to squeeze your hands and you put their, your hand in their, in their hand and tell them to squeeze, you might actually see some response, all right? Now, it's not gonna be that vigorous squeeze, but if you put your hand in their hand, you might see like a little flicker. And what that is, is a flicker of hope for the family. So um, a much better way to go about it is, can you lift your arms? Can you press against my hands? Can you press your feet against my hands? Um, you know, you'll do those, uh, the pronator drift. Have you guys ever seen that? Pronator drift is where you ask the patient to pronate their hands above them. And then you're looking for them to um, keep them up equally, right? And so usually with a stroke, they're not able to pronate both hands equally. One will start drifting down and that's a neurological assessment. Um, and then resistance to movement is press your hands against my hands. That's so much better than um, squeeze my hands, okay? All right. Um, I have a quick question, and yeah. I don't know if it's relevant or not. Well, that's okay. Just go ahead and ask it. A neurologist, two, I heard two neurologists, my dad's, and then I also had an appointment recently. And they, the first question they asked was, are you right-handed right or left-handed? Why, why is that important? I have no clue. I will ask Melody though, because she is our neuro person. Um, she'll probably know. Will you um, send me an email so I don't forget to ask her about that? Yeah. I log off of these Zoom calls and my brain is like completely dead. I just, I feel just like you, probably worse. I don't have any recollection of anything that we talked about by the time I get off of here. Okay, so we already talked about Cushing's triad. This is just an example of like the different irregular respirations that you'll see with Cushing's triad. Um, these are just some of the different ones, all right? So you'll see like the cluster breathing. You might see some periods of apnea. Caney strokes are weird. Have you guys ever seen that? Uh, probably not. That's where like patients are having some pretty significant issues. And um, this is where... Typically what you'll see, I had a friend who worked in hospice and the patient was, um, you know, palliative care. They, she was, she got called out because the patient was so close to death. And so um, the patient like stopped breathing and she felt the pulse and was like, okay, the patient, time of death, like 10.05, you know? 
And then all of a sudden the patient started breathing again, hyperventilating. And she was like, what is happening? And so she was like, oh, okay, no problem. <laughs> then a few minutes later, the patient stopped breathing again. So she was like, time of death in 10. <laughs> And then and the patient was having these Cheney strokes respirations. And so she like called time of death for the family like three different times before she called the provider and was like, what is happening? Um, okay, again, diligent I's and O's. And then uh, this patient is really, really is, go ahead. I'm recording this, I'll post it. Um, the patient is at high risk for SIADH and DI, all right? This is one of the main causes of uh, diabetes insipidus and SIADH. And um, so remember that you still do need to be looking for those things. How do you tell? What are gonna be your first sign symptoms of SIADH and DI? Uh, urine output. So if they're, if they're not producing urine, SIADH, they're producing too much urine, it's DI. DI, now if you just gave mannitol, that's a whole other story. But yes, if you didn't, then that's not expected. So we need to be on the lookout for that. So they start producing, they have urine output changes. So then what? What are your next things? Like what else do we need to be looking at? You're worried about uh, their sodium levels. So you have hypo and hyper. Uh-huh. So we need to look for those electrolyte imbalances with the complete metabolic panel. We're going to send something, send the urine down for a urinalysis so we can look at urine-specific gravity, right? Um, and then eventually we're going to be thinking about like, well, are they having weight changes? Are they retaining fluid or are they getting rid of too much fluid? And that's really important as well. Good job. This whole time, you guys, I thought Lily was like in an office and that she was like, I was being listened to by someone. And I just realized it's Ron Swanson from Parks and Rec, right? That's so funny. Okay. So, um, Let's see, you're gonna be monitoring ICP, respiratory function, pain and sedation. I feel like we've already talked about all of that pretty adequately, but we haven't talked about positioning of your patient. So your patient with elevated intracranial pressure, now we know that there's elevation because we have that ICP device in them, right? The monitoring device. But even if you don't, we're just wanting this like real neutral head is in the midline position, just like this, this a person here, right? Midline position of the head. We want them like prone, no, supine, um, face up, head up. And the head of the bed, what do you think? Would we want them 10, 0, 45, 75, 90, what? I think between 10 and 35, right? Somewhere in there, I think. Like about 30-ish? About 30-ish is right, yeah. So what you're really, the reason there's not like a actual uh, range for you is because it really depends on their cerebral perfusion and their blood flow and their MAP and their ICP. So if you put the head of the bed up and their ICP goes down and their MAP is really high, then you might have to lower it down again. I mean, it really is just like, how do we achieve optimal ICP and optimal, optimal cerebral perfusion pressure, okay? So that's what you're looking at. You're looking at that map. You're looking at that ICP to kind of make sure that their head of the bed makes sense and that it works for them. Otherwise, we want to keep their body in a midline position, support their neck. You can see this guy has a C collar on. Um, 
And then what else? What other thing? We have this ICP monitor device. And so where does that have to be in alignment with? With the tragus of the ear. Tragus of the ear. Tragus of the ear. So that means that really slow, gentle turning, because ultimately we don't care about that monitor. We really care about fluctuations in their ICP that could be detrimental, right? We don't want CSF to go leaking out of that ICP drain. We don't want that thing to become dislodged. Um, so protect them from inner injury that has to do with seizures and yeah, seizures and um, meningitis and all sorts of things. So, okay. So let's get into types of head injuries. We talked about um, skull fractures a second ago. Now, when you have a patient with a skull fracture, um, you know, the causes could be a lot of different things. But this is a fracture anywhere on the skull, right? And so we said that bacillar is like that bacilla bone, bacillar bone, and then you have your parietal bone back here. Now, a bacillar skull fracture is always going to result in almost always raccoon eyes, okay? And that's where you have bruised eyes, um, generally bilaterally. It may be unilateral. Don't overthink it. Raccoon eyes is going to be indicative of a skull fracture um, to the front portion of their face, right? And then rhinorrhea, what is rhinorrhea? Nasal discharge. Um, nasal discharge, nasal discharge. Now it could be post-nasal drip, like CT said. It could be, what else? In this situation, the skull fracture. CSF. CSF, right? So how do you know, how do you tell if someone something's CSF? The halo sign. The halo sign. So who was it? Haley, Haley, tell us what the halo sign is, if you're still here. She's like, I am here, but I am leaving now. Okay, remember what the halo sign is. It is that where you take a clean gauze, you have rhinorrhea, you have otorrhea. Um, and so you take a clean gauze and you dab it, right? And then you let it dry and it will look, if it's CSF, it's gonna have a yellow ring on the outside and the center will have a little bit of blood, right? That's gonna be CSF, that's how you tell. Um, if it's post-nasal drip, then it's not gonna have that. It's not gonna have that yellow ring or the blood in the middle, right? It's just gonna look like snot or post-nasal drip. Odorrhea, this is important, right? Your ears typically don't leak fluid. If they do, you should go see someone about that because that's not really normal. Now you have earwax. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about fluid exiting your ear. And that in this situation, when and especially when you have this post-auricular ecchymosis and next to this post-auricular ecchymosis, put battle sign. This is called battle sign. When you have that uh, bruising that's right here, that is indicative of a parietal skull fracture, especially when it's accompanied by odorrhea. All right, that's a CSF leak from that um, parietal skull fracture. All right, any questions about halo sign? I have a question over the odorrhea. I mean, uh -huh. obviously, if you're leaking from your ears, it's most likely the spinal fluid, but would they still want you to do a halo test just to confirm that? Yes. So okay. if you are like taking care of a patient, that has been in a car accident and you're like, oh, there's something dripping out of their ear. It might not even be much, actually, but 
if you're like, you can do this anywhere, right? So you want to take a clean gauze and dab it just to see if it dries with that halo on it. Um, and if you're on med surge, whatever, like anytime you see like fluid, especially the patient's really high risk, then you want to think like that could be CSF. And that's a really inexpensive way to, you know, get a good, good hint on whether or not it is. Um, and that's something that you could, you could definitely do before you call a physician, you know, or provider. Any other questions about that? When are you going to see otorrhea? Battle sign when they've got a post auricular or I guess skull fracture in general, I guess it could happen. Parietal skull fracture. It's going to be more likely when you see a parietal skull fracture. When are you more likely to see rhinorrhea? Basilar skull fracture. Okay. Yeah, basilar skull fracture. Mm -hmm. Yes, facial trauma. Okay, concussion um, or diffuse injuries. You know, concussions are, I mean, I feel like almost everybody has been concussed at some point in their life. And what that is, is it is a sudden transient mechanical head injury where you have some uh, disruption of neuronal activity. It may or may not result in loss of consciousness. Like you may have had a, a concussion and you weren't ever unconscious. Typically though, what it does, um, one of the signs and symptoms of concussion is headache, obviously. And that doesn't necessarily mean you have increased intracranial pressure in this situation, but you might also have something called retrograde amnesia. Who can tell me what retrograde amnesia is? Isn't it where you have like short-term memory loss? Yes, you don't remember the things the, what happened immediately before, okay? So retrograde amnesia, like they were probably not gonna be able to tell you not just like what happened, but the, a few minutes before that, okay? That is a sign and symptom of concussion versus, hey, Arnold, wow, oh my goodness. I'm so excited someone else remembers, hey, Arnold, besides me, that's exciting. Um, all right, and then diffuse axonal injury. This is just like a TBI, right? Um, this is fun. All right. Um, so this is where you have like, it's not just in one area of the brain. You're, it's kind of like axonal injury that's happening all over the brain. This is different from CTE. CTE is chronic traumatic encephalopathy. And that's where you have repeat concussions. Diffuse axonal injury is where you actually have like, you've hit your head and it's caused kind of like a shearing of all of the tissues um, of your brain or like not, not even necessarily all of them, but just like more than you would see in a concussion. Fun fact, I, um, man, this time last year, 2020 was like crazy for me. In January, started the year out just fine. And um, I woke up one morning and I couldn't hear out of my ear, like at all. I couldn't hear out of my ear. And I was like, it was so uh, weird and emotional. I thought I had an ear infection. And like my husband, he was like, it's fine went to urgent care, they were like, it's fine. And then I ended up like at my uncle's house who happens to be an ENT. And he was like, did um, that thing, remember the little- uh, Forks. Yeah, the tuning fork. And he put it to my ear and he did like 30 seconds worth of tests. He said, you have sensory, uh, sudden onset sensory neuronal hearing loss. And he was like, we have no idea why this happens. All I, all I know is that you have to start corticosteroids today to have any chance of regaining your hearing. 
And so for like two weeks, I was lecturing, I couldn't hear out of one ear and like students were talking to me. I was like, I literally have no idea what you're talking about. So those corticosteroids helped my hearing like is completely good again, but my uncle um, as follow-up wanted me to get a CT. I was pregnant at the time. So I had to wait until like, what was it? December. So at the end of the year, I had a CT scan angiogram and he, he was like, uh, you don't have anything that would have caused that except you have <laughs> like, uh, your brain showed us that you have like diffuse axonal injury. And he was like, have you ever had a TBI? And I was like, uh, not that I knew of, but in middle school, this kid named Matt McDown picked me up and threw me on cement. We were playing kiss and tackle. I don't know if you remember that game. Hey, Arnold people. We were playing kiss and tackle and he like picked me up and threw me down. I guess it resulted in a TBI. And all these years later, I'm like, I really did have brain injury. I really am brain injured. I feel so, you know, seen, I guess is what I'm saying. Okay. Wow. 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 Sorry for that. All right. You can see here. I'm not going to say anything else about this. Remember retrograde amnesia. You can have these head injuries, these head traumas, and um, this is pretty important, especially the hematomas. So an epidural hematoma, we're talking about the dura matter, right, of the brain. If you took off your actual skull, your brain would be covered in this like, um, I don't know, it kind of reminds me of wax paper, but it's like this membrane, right, and it's protecting your brain, and it's in between your skull and your brain. That's your dura. An epidural uh, hematoma is a loss of blood. It's like bleeding in between your skull and that dura matter. And so it compresses your brain tissue. A subdural hematoma is underneath that dura matter. So if you took off your brain, your uh, skull, and you had that dura matter that you could see and there was bleeding underneath it, that's a subdural hematoma, all right? Um, versus epidural, which is above that dura and in between the skull and the dura matter. That is very important to know. And then you have your intracerebral brain uh, bleeds as well. And that's just like within the actual brain tissue itself. Okay. Do you know who this is? Does anybody remember this movie? Hey, Arnold people. This is the parent Yes, it is. And who that's is this little too. girl? Look at this little adorable girl. Free trash. Lohan looks so nice. Then. I know she's <laughs> a little, little young. She looks adorable. Well, this lady is her mother in this film, Natasha. Um, I it's escaping me again, but she was married to Liam Neeson. You know Liam Neeson from your um, you know he's the action guy. What's escape? Not escape. Taken. Taken movies, right? But before all of that happened. Em and Natasha were married. She was a famous Hollywood actress. She was beloved by all because she was a parent trap wife. Her and Liam went skiing. She uh, hit her head, right? And she ended up getting an epidural hematoma. And uh, what happened was she had like a brief period of unconsciousness on the slope. And then she got up and she was like, I feel fine. Let's go back. And she died that night from she had an epidural hematoma. So obviously super traumatic, but basically what happens is that blood just builds up and builds up and builds up and you end up with like really high uh, elevated ICP and then you die, right? 
if it's if the ICP is not corrected. So there you go. I wanted to make sure and end on a really happy note. Um, and then subdural hematoma again happened on a bunny slope. Wow. What, where are we safe? You know, where are we safe? So subdural hematoma, again, it's underneath the dura matter, in between the dura matter and your brain tissue. And so, um, yeah, it can be acute, subacute, or chronic. And really what that means is like, you can have like an acute shearing and that can happen with like your um, axonal injury or something like that, that will result in a subdural hematoma, but it could also be that it develops after injury between 48 hours, two weeks out of the injury, you could still develop a subacute subdural hematoma. And then you could have chronic hematoma. And this is people who just like, maybe they're on blood thinners. Maybe they just have like a lot of head trauma or, you know, something happening. And it's ha this chronic subdural hematoma is um, developing over a very long time. And that can happen over several weeks or even several months. Um, okay. Are there any more slides? Thank goodness. What questions do you guys have for me? We are 18 minutes over. I'm so sorry. Anything at all? I always enjoy our conversation so much. Mm -hmm.